Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Barbara Oakley, Professor of Industrial and Systems Engineering at Oakland University in Michigan. Welcome. Well, thank you so much, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Ah, this would be a real interesting Currents conversation. Uh, Barbara's got a really unusual background for a professor of engineering. Uh, After leaving high school, uh, she didn't go to college. She enlisted in the U.S. Army. And the Army Center to Study at the University of Washington, where she completed a BA in Slavic languages and literature. She also received extensive training at the Defense Language Institute. That's is that the thing that's in Monterey? Yep, it was beautiful. Yep, I know people have gone there. And they said that is one intense program. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, but I learned a lot. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that and how that applies to math, interestingly enough. Uh, and then she uh, went on to serve as a signal officer in Germany and eventually achieved the rank of captain. Uh, after she uh, left the army, she decided to challenge herself. You know, she's basically a liberal artsy type person. Uh, and uh, she wanted to discover if she could retool her mind to study mathematical subjects. And she did. And, uh, you know, she's written a book about it, A Mind for Numbers, How to Excel at Math and Science, Even If You Flunked Algebra. And today's episode will be based on an essay she wrote in Nautilus called How I Rewired My Brain to Become Fluent in Math. So, you know, uh, a key concept in the essay uh, is fluency, uh, which you repurpose from your experience learning the Russian language. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Maybe tell us a few war stories about uh, uh, about all that. Oh, I have so many war stories. But uh, the, what has fascinated me over the years is, so I was terrible at math and science. I mean, I flunked my way through elementary, middle, and high school math and science and I hated, I, I remember I got called into the dean of students when I was in eighth grade because I refused to pay attention even in class. And I would just have a stack of books and I'd read the, read a book and the teacher would come up, grab a book, and I'd just pull another one off my stack. I mean, I was really ostentatiously not going to pay attention. And when I was called in, I remember kind of belligerently, I was such a... Uh, not too bright uh, young woman, but I, I said, I will never use mathematics. It is a complete waste of time. I, I don't want anything to do with it ever. And then when I enlisted in you know, the army right out of high school, I, I went to study Russian and, and the army, they, they sent me off. I, I did really well in my studies and they sent me to get my uh, bachelor's degree in Slavic languages and literature. And then in their great wisdom, they made me a signal officer, which meant that I was in charge of uh, cable systems, radio, uh, switchboards, and so forth. 
I didn't even know what a volt was. What's an amp? Why does a, a circuit have to go out and then come back? Why can't it just go out? I mean, I didn't understand any of this stuff. But what did start to become clear is, you know, there's something to this math business and technology is actually quite useful. And in fact, it's really very interesting. And so that's, and I also found that, guess what? There was just not a big call for people whose sole professional expertise is Slavic languages and literature. So when I decided to go ahead and complete my service and get out of the army at age 26, uh, I thought, well, nobody wants to hire me. Um, I'm supposed to be kind of adventurous and open to learning new things. Why don't I see if I can change my brain? And what really surprised me was the techniques I had used to learn language, which are really very good techniques because the Defense Language Institute brings in the top experts from around the world, and they had put together programs for learning languages that were outstanding. And they had to, because during World War II, it was, uh, you better learn a language fast when you did have to learn one. And But a lot of what they emphasized, as, as I discovered, as I now realized, is, is that they were emphasizing procedural fluency, so you didn't just use, there's actually, there's two ways that you learn things. You learn through the hippocampus, that declarative system. That's the step by step by step. I learned this, that means this, and then I do this. Or I, I connect the, the word pato, which means duck in Spanish, with a paddling duck in a, a little pot. So, so those kinds of things are... Um, they're very straightforward to learn, but procedural fluency is how you learn patterns and how you gain automaticity. And you only do that through lots of practice and varied interleaved practice. So when I started to study uh, math and science as an adult, I thought, well, the best way I've found to learn things is to use this kind of procedural fluency, really get these ideas and interleave them. And it turned out that approach worked great. And that's not the approach, um, surprisingly, that is used in teaching math and science in, in many of today's K-12's, K-12 educators' approaches to teaching in math and science. So sometimes I'm a little... Um, taken aback in that it almost seems like the system we have in this country for teaching math and science is, is crippling students' abilities to learn in those subject areas. Yeah, you call that out quite specifically. I, you know, my own history was a little different. I always loved math and science, and I, uh, even though I came from, uh, my father dropped out of high school after uh, ninth grade, and my mother left home when she was 14, and so I didn't really have an academic kind of background. Grew up in a neighborhood where half the adults were high school dropouts, but you know, I nonetheless uh, always loved math and science. In fact, I still recall it. I'm proud of the fact that I got 100% on every test and quiz in Algebra 1 for the whole year. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. yeah. So I was a math nerd, right? Uh, just <laughs> loved it for, for whatever reason. However, I think part of that is that I was lucky in my timing. 
you know, when I came up, uh, there was a lot of rote memory and, you know, learning procedures, how to do long division, right? Even how to calculate a square root, you know, you know how to solve a quadratic equation. They just pound the hell out of it into you. However, there was an attempt when I was about in sixth grade to introduce something called the new math, which was set theoretic. And uh, all the parents rebelled because they said, I can't help my kids with the homework. What is this shit? Right. And uh, so they we got a little bit of that in our curriculum, but not a lot. So in some sense, I feel like I got the optimal amount, which was uh, some, as you call it, understanding centered teaching methods. Uh, but also a tremendous amount of uh, procedural and rote uh, learning, which I believe uh, was what gave me a quite solid uh, math and generally quantitative background. Maybe you could uh, dig in a, a little bit into this uh, so-called understanding-centered teaching method that uh, seems to have come back uh, after my day and become uh, more central in how math is taught today. Well, I think that that the challenge is that educators often believe that the only way you really learn something is if you learn it declaratively. That means you can explain it. So it's step by step by step. You can explain what's going on. But but when you learn something procedurally, you know it really, really well, but you can't necessarily explain it. That's why it's so difficult to, if, if like if you know how to solve Rubik's cubes, you can't really explain it very well. Or if I asked you to explain how you tie your shoelace, I mean, you could do it in a second, but explaining how you do it, that is really hard because it's procedural. So I think that when that you're right, see, it's not all bad to, to think in, a, in terms of understanding. That's, that's actually great. But I remember I once had a student come up to me and he waved this test. He'd flunked and I, you know, I, I'd had red ink that I'd put everywhere because it was just terrible. And he waved it at me and he said, I just don't understand how I could have flunked this test because I understood what you said when you said it in class. <laughs> I just... You, it, it's become so all-encompassing that all you need is this sort of magic feeling of understanding that, that that's enough, that you really learn something. But you really only learn something when you put those sets of links or make those connections between neurons in long-term memory in the neocortex. And just understanding something does not, you know, like temporarily kind of caught it. But if you, if you don't practice with it, if you don't really cement those links, you don't have it. So you're just fooling yourself. And it's, uh, you're, I'm sure you know the Dunning-Kruger syndrome of you're, you think you know something and you don't know it at all. So, you know, in some sense, you're so stupid that you don't even realize how stupid you are. And of course... Yeah, funny. I have that. I have Dunning Kruger in my notes, and I was going to bring that forward. You know, and a fine example is comparing uh, U.S. Uh, high school students with East Asian high school students. Oh yeah. Uh, the American high school students think they know math uh, at a pretty high level. You know, their level of confidence in knowing uh, is high, but their actual ability to perform is low. While in East Asia, it's the opposite. 
the East Asians are relatively unconfident about their knowledge of uh, math, but they can perform at a high level. So that's kind of really interesting that uh, our American uh, way of teaching, uh, you know, what you call uh, understanding centered has, has clearly resulted in, uh, in Dunning-Kruger syndrome uh, with respect to actual ability to do math. That's right. I think a problem is, so there's several problems. What educators will do is if you bring up, for example, that the PISA tests that Asians often do far, far better in PISA tests. And indeed, you bring someone from China in eighth grade to do eighth grade U.S. math, and and it's a joke to them what what we're covering. Um, and so the the response by educators, unfortunately, has been just to demean the uh, PISA tests. Oh, no, well, that's just a stupid test. It's, it's not really testing the, the full abilities, which actually it's testing some important abilities. And if you're going down on that slope of PISA tests, that's not a good sign. But the other thing that they do that is, to my mind, even worse, is that they conflate challenges in, for example, the Chinese educational system with challenges in the U.S. system. And what I mean by that is they will, educators will often say, well, we don't want our students having this rote memorization approach to learning in math. And and we don't, I mean, to some extent, but the, the challenge is that what that the Chinese educational system also does something really, really different. I mean, it it idolizes teachers to such an extent that you, you never want to object or ask questions or do any of these kinds of things. So it's a cultural approach to learning that can, in some sense, suppress creativity, but it has nothing to do with the fact that you've practiced something really well and you've gotten really good at it, as you would do with, um, as you do in math, so you need to do when you're learning how to play the piano or learning a new language and so forth. You need that practice. And it certainly doesn't suppress creativity if you've practiced a lot with the piano or with, um, you know, with learning a language or learning how to ride a bicycle. But somehow, I know that when I I expressed in a New York Times op-ed that practice is important in learning math, and there's plenty of evidence from that uh, about that in research, which should be an utterly benign statement. But you would have thought I just said, well, you know, we should burn down all elementary schools in this country because math educators are like oh, practice. Oh no, that's just, that's evil. You shouldn't be doing that kind of thing because that's what kills students' love of, uh, of the material. And it's like, no, it's not. It's actually practice that helps students master it and grow to love it. And in fact, if you look, you know, at like hiring committees that I've been on, um, virtually, Every one of thousands of applicants are from countries that have the methods of learning math, you know, that that are dismissed by U.S. educators 
what is going on here that we, you know, that all of our engineering applicants are actually, they're from these countries who, who have, so to speak, the wrong approach to learning. Clearly, it's the right approach. It's helped them. So I think we, the educators need to perk up and look at what's going on instead of sort of circling the wind wagons and thinking defensively that their approach has to be right. Yeah, it's unfortunate that the education departments, even in the most elite universities, are often 50 years behind the times with respect to things like cognitive science or even, as you point out, plain old results. Right? It's an extraordinarily conservative in the sense of looking backward in time uh, uh, discipline. I can tell, tell some stories of there, but I probably shouldn't, so I won't. Uh, oh, I'd love to hear them. Oh, goodness. Well, i got to tell you one story. I, had a, uh, I was helping an elite university design a PhD program in cognitive science, uh, cross-disciplinary, where essentially it would be uh, a, a PhDs in applied cognitive science across, uh, we got the dean of the business school to sign in, the dean of the medical school to sign up, the Dean of Engineering, and of course, we had the Dean of Arts and Sciences, where psychology was, which had a very strong cognitive science department. Uh, we were all, uh, uh, everybody was on board, and, and then we decided, and along the way, we also decided to go talk to the education school. Guess who told who told us they weren't interested at all? <laughs> the education <laughs> school. Uh, I remember once pursuing the Dean of the School of Education down and around a hallway because she refused to sign off on a, uh, that she was supporting a grant proposal um, that, that would be about practice as a method of helping students learn math. And so her way of refusing to do it was not to just outright refuse, but to always just not be there. And so she couldn't sign off on things. And I remember seeing her and she saw me and she took off down the hallway and I was just like, this is just, so weird. But you know, another thing that, I mean, there is some visionary work being done in education and cognitive psychology has done some fantastic uh, research that I base my work on. So I, I can't, I certainly don't want to uh, uh, dismiss everything, but I do have to laugh because lately there's this well, there's long been this flood of, oh, online learning is terrible. It's just awful. And, and now it's the, there's this huge flood of online learning is a terrible thing. Our students are losing this year because it's online. And online is clearly worse than in class. And yet I look at some of the, the biggest proponents, so-called experts, uh, who are saying this and shouting it from the rooftops. And if you look at their online courses, they're absolutely awful. I mean, they're just they're just awful. Uh, and so it, it, they, you can see that one reason they don't like online learning is because a they're they can't trap students in classrooms and make them pay attention because they're trapped there. And yet, that's what good teaching is. And so, like you, you watch some of their their teaching, and they they have like no no illustrations. They'll just get up and talk and use their voice. And, and of course, people don't like that kind of thing. So it's it does make me laugh because I I think that you know as terrible as it is, COVID um, is getting 
some educators to realize that, wait a minute, there there is at least a little bit of something good going on with online learning that we, we really can um, teach in this way. My, my favorite athlete of all time is Julius Yego, and he uh, became, he wanted to throw the javelin. He was from Kenya, and of course, he, there was no javelin throwing coaches. So he just watched YouTube and taught himself how to throw the javelin. And he, 99.9% just by watching YouTube and going out and training on his own, he won the world championship in javelin. And I'm just like, people can learn so much online. And I think that some of the visionaries are becoming more and more aware of that. Yeah, certainly this is an opportunity uh, for our society, this COVID mess in a lot of ways. I've had episodes on my shows about that. And I think one of the things is it'll at least start to sort out the the crap from the good in online learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, In math, I know when I uh, run to somebody that seems to need to learn, uh, you know, some math and has a hole in their math background, I'll often point them to the Khan Academy stuff. What do you think about that? Oh, I adore Khan Academy. Uh, And in fact, our daughter is in her master's program in statistics now, our younger daughter, uh, and she swears that she only got through her first years of college math because she because of the support of Khan Academy. And again, it is it does make me laugh because you'll look at some of the reform educators and they'll be like, he actually explains this stuff. Shame on him. Does it, students should figure it out on their own. And it's like, well, you know, I, that maybe works when you're eight years old, but when you're nearly 20 and you're studying advanced calculus, it's just not so helpful to try and figure everything out on your own. Not everybody's a Newton. So uh, it's it's just kind of a a sticky wicket there sometimes. Yeah, indeed. One of my friends, Zach Stein, has written a fair amount about innovative education. Uh, He calls it the need for teacherly authority. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that the kids can find their own way through the underbrush is just not realistic, uh, at least not in any reasonable period of time. And so the teacher has to point the way, essentially. There is so much evidence from evolutionary theory that supports precisely that. If you look at Dave Geary's work, um, there's there's plenty of evidence that the more comp- there's like two things that two ways of categorizing knowledge, and I call it the easy stuff and the hard stuff. But the more formal term is biologically primary and biologically secondary material. So biologically primary material is stuff like being able to recognize a face or being able to speak a native language, and those are really, really difficult tasks, but we do it easily. We don't even need to be trained. I mean, boy, would universities love it if they had to, if you had to take an advanced course in recognizing faces or something. Uh, and for artificial intelligence to do it, it's taken decades and decades. But um, the the thing is, so the but the more advanced kind of material are things like reading, writing, and doing mathematics. None of these things were what we've done from an evolutionary perspective. And to do those kinds of things, you have to actually kind of 
push wiring and rewire your brain, which is why it's important to learn these kinds of things when you're younger, uh, because it, it helps that rewiring um, to take place if you're young while, while it's pushing things aside. But the, the, the more biologically secondary the material, in other words, the harder the material, the more that explicit instruction mixed with episodes of active learning becomes important. There's one paper by Freeman, and it did make me laugh. It's like active learning, it, you know, I'm paraphrasing the title, but it's active learning is super important in STEM education. And uh, the conclusion, and, and it's a very well done paper, and it's a large meta-analysis that in, in essence, concludes that active learning is the be-all and end-all, that without some active learning in the classroom, you're, the students are not going to be as successful. But the implication of that paper is that you should always spend all your time doing active learning. That's not exactly what they say, but it's if you look at the title, and sort of the implication of what people walk away from that paper with is, well, you should just have students be figuring things out and doing things actively all the, all the time. Yet there's another paper, uh, a, another massive meta-analysis published eight years before that, that says that active learning really doesn't do squat. Um, it, it's, it's really problematic, discovery-based, experiential, all these kinds of things. It, it, they're, they're not good methods. They, they produce failures. So who's right? Is it Freeman or, 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 or Kirchner? Which paper is correct? And the answer is both papers are correct. It's just that the, it's the interspersing of explicit instruction with bits of active learning, with bits of explicit instruction, back and forth, that's what's really, really helpful for students. So, uh, so direct, this mixture is called direct instruction, and it's often denigrated by educators because they don't understand that it's a mix of active learning with explicit instruction. They think it's just talk and chalk through an entire but it, it's not, and it's been very well researched as one of the best ways for students to learn. So, uh, so it's it, it's kind of funny in that we do understand a lot about how people learn effectively. It's just that that business of when an expert gets in mind their idea of what something should be they can be utterly inflexible about anything different, any different approaches, because it could affect their career. And even long ago, Santiago Ramon y Cajal, the, uh, the wonderful founder of, he's called the father of modern neuroscience, he said his one of his greatest attributes was that he was flexible, that he was no genius, that he wasn't that smart, because he didn't grow up being really smart. And that meant he was used to making mistakes and correcting his mistakes. And he said the geniuses he worked with, they weren't used to correcting their mistakes. And what they would do instead was they would just um, kind of uh, find ways to justify why they must have been right after all. And I think we see that going on with 
well, not only educational gurus, but gurus in pretty much any kind of um, enterprise. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, justification is a core human cognitive uh, capability. In fact, we've had uh, Greg Henry Keyes on a couple of times on the show, who's a professor at James Madison University. And, uh, you know, his theory of uh, human cognition is called justification theory, that uh, that's what humans do, right? At least that's a little overstated, but a big part of his broader tree of knowledge theory is justification theory and that humans, unlike other animals, one of the new capabilities that we added since the chimp is this capability to justify our own actions. <laughs> Very strong, unfortunately. Yeah, that is really fascinating. But what what I find interesting, so like when I'm teaching intru- uh, engineering students, I've got these cocky, they're usually guys, and they're, they're, they're like totally cocky. And, and the thing is, you want to say you know, don't be so cocky about stuff, especially when they've got kind of Dunning-Kruger syndrome. But at the same time, a lot of engineering successes have occurred because of this cockiness. You know, you you look at um, Isambard Kingdom, Brunel, and his, his brilliant bridges and tunnels and things. And it's like, this is all impossible stuff. He can't be doing this. And it was his sheer cockiness that got him uh, off the ground, so to speak, or literally. Whereas if you're a little bit more, um, uh, like, willing to accept your own flaws and so forth, but almost too much so, then you can end up in trouble because you, you're indecisive and you, it's hard to get things done. And I've worked with people, and I'm sure you have too, where they'll just ask you. They're, they're incapable of independently making decisions, and that just can drive you crazy too. Yeah, very similar to business. My In my business career, uh, especially entrepreneurs, I did a number of startups and have helped other startups. Uh, truthfully, if you're not a little bit overconfident, mm-hmm. you probably shouldn't be in the startup game, right? Right, uh, right? You have to believe probably more than what a cold-blooded analysis would say. On the other hand, you can't be too crazy. You can't be disconnected from reality. So that's this, I call it an optimistic bias, but grounded in reality is probably the right place to be, something like that. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. I've heard that uh, one of the biggest challenges in training diplomats, though, is that they tend to be overly cocky. They're really convinced that their cultural approach is the right way to approach things, and that if they go to another country that does things differently, well, they're wrong. And one of the the most difficult challenges in training high-level dis- diplomats is to get them to realize that, you know, there are other ways of thinking about things and your way is not necessarily the right way. Yeah, but certainly in those kinds of cases, we're talking about uh, cross-cultural. Uh, That's very important to have a certain amount of modesty. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I was going to, before we move on to the next topic, I was just going to mention, you mentioned direct instruction, uh, which indeed is, uh, by every measure, a very successful way to teach. Uh, mention that at a school of education, and they'll get the they'll get the uh, the guns and the and the flaming torches out. That's like the worst thing you can say at a school of education. Isn't it funny? It, it's just a shame, and it, and part of it, I think, is that 
you know, and when you really look at direct instruction, it, it's, it's that mixture of direct, you know, of explanation plus active learning. And that just makes common sense. You're still, the students are very much involved in what they're doing. Um, but it's, it's this weird thing because I'll talk to some people and they'll say, the, it's, it's just not true that uh, constructivist approaches, uh, which means basically student-centered learning, that students are put in charge of their learning, that it's just not true that teachers will will just dump students off to do their own learning. Uh, constructivism actually entails explaining and then having students do things. So it's 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 almost like they'll just put a different set of terminology, and we're actually talking about the same things as being optimal for students. But what I have come to discover is that. Um, very high-level educators who are affiliated with really good schools, it's absolutely true. They will mix uh, explicit instruction with active learning, and so their form of constructivism is a very powerful one. But they are often completely unaware of what is going on in a typical inner urban school, for example, uh, or a, a rural school, or where when these constructivist approaches are, are promulgated, it often can end up as, okay, you guys, you do your stuff and I'm going to answer my emails and check my, you know, what, I'm, um, what I'm working on because your job is to teach yourself. And they, so it's almost like what, there's this disconnect of what high-level educators actually know about what's really occurring in the classroom, in many of these sort of um, extended uh, rural or, um, uh, or or urban schools that are not high level and not wealthy and so forth. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, I know, for example, some charter schools that have focused on direct instructions in the inner city have done remarkably well, using taking the same students. Absolutely. And, and what's funny is, let's see, if you read Eva Moskowitz's, um, the, the education of Eva Moskowitz, uh, and she talks about starting up charter, uh, a series of charter schools in New York City. And she was going up against the, the head of the teachers union, who was also starting uh, sort of a equivalent charter school. And so it was going to be the proof is right there. They're going mano a mano at each other. And of course, Eva's schools came out stellar. And the other school, I believe they ended up, they had to shut that school system down because it was just doing so terribly. And then, of course, the head of the teachers union was like, ah, oh, somebody else took over and they were doing it right and, you know, justifying things. Uh, um, but uh, teachers... I do think that charter schools, they're not perfect. There's no system that is perfect. But to have a monolithic lock on how children are taught is a recipe for um, some pretty poor approaches for, for students.
Yeah, unfortunately, we're seeing it in the results. Let's go on to the next topic. You talk about the relationship between uh, learning math uh, and learning a sport. Uh, you talk a little bit about golf. You may have some other examples. Maybe you can uh, dig into that a little bit. Okay, so when you're learning something, you can learn through the declarative system. What's happening is your working memory, which is kind of like what you can hold temporarily in mind, is sending information through the hippocampus into long-term memory. And the hippocampus kind of massages things. Eventually, you can get to learn it, so you don't even have to use the hippocampus. You can kind of just draw something from long-term memory. This is a very flexible system of learning, and it also allows you to, uh, I mean, you can learn it quickly because, for example, if you are, are learning like a verb conjugation pattern in Spanish, then you, you don't have to just like listen to all these hundreds and hundreds of sentences and see if you can figure out what the conjugation pattern is. You are directly told what that pattern is. So it's easy to learn, but it's really slow to use. Like if I'm trying to say something in Spanish, I'm like, now is that hablo, hablas, hablé, no, hablando, which, like, oh, which one is it? So it's slow to use, fast to learn, but slow to use. I can get around to getting the right answer, but not with a speedy, fluent proficiency. However, if I learn some facts through my procedural system, the procedural system, it, it, it largely encompasses the basal ganglia. You're, you are completely unaware of how that system learns. You, it's like you're trying to hit a ball. Well, you tell yourself, okay, hit the ball. And then somehow magically inside your that procedural system, it, it figures out through enough practice how to hit the ball or how to type on the keyboard, or how to drive the car. And the thing is, it's, it's very slow to learn, but it's really fast to use. So like when I'm typing on the keyboard, don't even ask me, you know, what, uh, the second finger from, you know, from the end, which keys does that type? I, I couldn't tell you, but I can type really speedily. But it's inflexible. If I if you change the keyboard keys, it would take me a long time to, to adjust to that. Now, when you're learning something like a language, you, you are learning both through your declarative system, you're setting links there, and that's really that, you know, it's fast to put those links there. You're also learning through the procedural system, at least you hope so. And what can happen with people is they can be learning a language and they're learning everything declaratively. And then they actually meet a person from that country, say Chile, and the person talks to them and they know the words, they know what they want to say and nothing comes out because there's no procedural fluency. You have not, you've not set those sets of links through the procedural system to draw on. So the result is you stand there with your mouth open and you can't say a word. Or if you do talk, it's very halting. So this is why it's important to learn both declaratively and procedurally so that you're not just speaking, but you're speaking fluently and easily without having to think about it. 
This is also the case with math. You want to have it so that when you look at a problem, you intuitively have a sense of how to solve that problem. And that only comes through lots of practice and interleave practice. That means mixing up uh, somewhat similar types of problems. So you know that, for example, oh, you've got to use the geometric distribution here as opposed to bi you know, binomial approaches there. You know which one to select based on the fact that you practiced a lot. So procedural fluency develops through practice, a lot of interleaved practice, and both are very important in learning, for example, mathematics. So if you have been educated in a way that only emphasizes declarative learning, you, you can figure things out, but it's a lot slower. It's not very intuitive. And you, it kind of cripples your ability to easily, so to speak, speak in that language because you're just not fluent in it. You haven't practiced enough to develop that fluency. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'll give you an example uh, of something I discovered in my own life that fits your model perfectly. Uh, there was a period when I was doing tutoring for uh, pre-meds in chemistry. Uh, and uh, this was sometime after I was in college, a little side, a little side hustle, as they say. Uh, and these, of course, being pre-meds, they're type A, you know, good, nerdy little students, etc., and But these were ones that were struggling in freshman chemistry. And I found again and again and again, uh, and I basically was probing on their very basic math skills. And I, I found that like more than 50%, their fundamental problem, you'll love this as somebody who has, uh, you know, mastered this stuff, uh, that the failure was in the most basic uh, manipulations around fractions, you know, the stuff you learned in fifth grade, basically. In particular... I found one in particular, which was here they are, you know, type A uh, uh, pre-meds at a pretty elite uh, college uh, who could not fluently, and this is, a, this is, I love your word, fluently, manipulate or let's say but more specifically add frank fractions with different denominators, right? And when you're doing dimensional reduction, dimensional analysis and chemistry and solving uh, you know, rate equations and things like that. You're constantly manipulating fractions. And that one little, literally fifth grade or sixth, I guess about, I think that's fifth grade, adding fractions with different denominators skill. They understood the theory, right? Could you explain how to do it? Yeah, sort of, maybe, right? But could they do it fluently when you had to do it in production, when you're doing your homework or in an exam? Absolutely not. And so I would find these simple procedural holes that they had. It was almost always in fractions, hilariously. People understood decimals fairly well, but they did not understand fractions. And I just drilled the hell out of them until they had uh, at their fingertips unconscious procedural memory on how to do the relatively simple mechanism to add two fractions with different denominators. That, that is, you are right at the point, and I think even underneath this problem with fractions is the fact that multiplication tables are largely discouraged. Um, educators discourage learning the multiplication tables by heart. You can't manipulate fractions very easily if you do not know the multiplication tables. And so I, I, I do see that 
for example, I, I, it's somewhat the same as you. I, I would see people who they look at something like one over one over K and they'd look at that and they'd be like, what is that? How do I handle that? And it's a very simple, I mean, if you practice, you look at that and go, that's just K. Yeah, just flip it over, right? We know that. All of us math nerds have got that beaten into our heads over the years by constant practice. Right. But they didn't have that constant practice because practice is kind of bad. And so they, I mean, the simplest things would will goof students up. And part of it, I think... There's this self-serving tendency by big tech, you know, to promote this idea that you can always just look it up. And it's really, uh, sometimes, you know, I'm like, are you looking at who is saying this? I mean, it's a math, you know, calculation website. Of course they want you to look it up. They don't want you to, to be able to handle these things mentally. And, you know, and it, of course, you, you need to have calculators to do the advanced um, sorts of uh, calculations. But by golly, you've got to have those basics. And if you don't, the simplest things are going to trip you up. And I think that's what we see um, time and time again now, as, as you noticed, uh, even in your tutoring career. Yeah. The other thing I noticed in business was that folks who did not have, let's say, uh, multiplication tables or uh, and uh, exponentials at their fingertips, uh, you know, uh, the uh, their ability to uh, roughly estimate an answer intuitively was completely lacking. Oh yeah. They, you know, they couldn't even get it within an order of magnitude because they just didn't have the the upholstery. I, I, I sometimes use the analogy that uh, you know, learning only the concepts and not actually the details or the facts is kind of like having a architect designed house with no furniture. <laughs> that is, that is really a good analogy. And it was really scary. That I mean, they you know, a person who has decent intuitive math skills uh, can estimate. And in fact, one of my best friends, who's the smartest person in my class at MIT, probably, uh, he'd always say, God damn it, there, the, there's never going to be a, a manned space mission that's successful because they're all using calculators now, not slide rules. <laughs> and, and he predicted that the shuttle disasters in advance based on that. He said the shuttle was the first device that was created using uh, calculators and computers, not slide rules. And if you use a slide rule, you have to have intuitive uh, feeling for orders of magnitude, and you will never make uh, orders of magnitude type errors. Yep, that's so true. The, th the thing that gets me is that constructivist approaches emphasize that you have to have an internal, you have to build your knowledge internally. And that's so true, and it's so important. And then it all gets thrown out, you know, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater when it comes to, yeah, but you don't need to internalize anything to do with, with mathematics because you can always just look it up. And it's like, no, then you don't get a feel for the patterns. You, you can't make these kinds of very, very important estimations. I love your word fluency. I'd never put fluency together with this kind of intuition, but I think that it, uh, it does a remarkable job of, of of getting the sense of what needs to be done here with math education in the same way that uh, 
you know, the big difference, yeah, I took my three years of high school Spanish and I can say dos cervezas, you know, when I go to Mexico and that's about it. Uh, on the other hand, they old people always say, if you really want to learn a language, get a, have a romantic relationship with somebody from that country who doesn't speak English, right? You'll figure it out and you'll get, become fluent. Uh, and that's a very, very different thing than just understanding the theory. Well, I really want to thank you for this, uh, 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 this episode. This has been really wonderful. And we talked about pregame. I'm going to have you back to talk about uh, your book that's coming out this summer, Uncommon Sense Teaching, Practical Insights in Brain Science to Help Students Learn. Uh, so uh, thanks for this great episode. And I look forward to having you back. Well, thank you, Jim. I look forward to being back. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.